the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar. A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades finally arrives. You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gongay-Ruzic. Welcome back inside the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 101, part two. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to that. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and follow us on social, on Apple, on Spotify. All of that always appreciated. Peter, Alex, alongside Ben here. It is episode 101, part two. We're back. We couldn't quite fit it all in one episode because between the postmortems of the World Cup and a newly launched women's league coming to Canada. Certainly a lot to talk about in women's soccer. Alex, Peter, how are you doing? Welcome back. Long time no see, clearly. want to thank everybody for sending in all the questions. That's why we had to split it into two parts, because we very quickly realized, maybe like 40, 45 minutes into the show, like, oh, we're probably going to have to split this into two, because you guys sent, I think it was, ended up being 60 questions just because of the women's league formation, all the player transfers that have happened, obviously the postmortem and looking ahead. So we didn't want to skip anything. We didn't want to take any shortcuts. So this was, we felt the best way to do it. And we are once again, excited to get back into the nitty gritty. Yeah. I mean, Peter, thanks for spoiling the fact that uh, we didn't do this all in one four hour, you know, monster induced. I was lying. I was red-eyed. lying. We actually did do four straight hours. Sorry. Yes. Red, exactly red-eyed right. NFP marathon, which sounds both amazing and terrible. I don't know if, how the listeners would feel about that. But yes, no, we're back. Uh, we, I mean, we have so many questions that, uh, of course, it, it's fantastic to be able to sit down and just discuss all of these great questions. I mean, before we dive into anything, shout out to all the great questions we keep getting every time the breadth, the depth of knowledge, just the amount of topics brought up. It is much appreciated and a reason why we're able to have two jam-packed shows and not just two shows where, you know, we're, we're filling time to get a, to a certain number. There's a lot of fantastic questions. And again, a lot of great post-CanMNT World Cup questions yesterday and today, you know, just Copa America. We got player-specific, a women's league, all this great stuff. Can't wait to dive in. And certainly a lot to dive into and so many unique questions. We're absolutely cooking with fire here. Exactly what Alex was doing just a couple of minutes before hopping on this podcast, setting off the fire alarm in our apartment, but all good and ready to go as we get into taking a look at the 2026 World Cup lineup that could see the field for Canada. And the question from Guavadelic, assuming Stefan Stakio and Ishmael Kone are key pieces going forward, who's another key midfielder you can see emerging? by 2026 at risk of not taking away some of alex's names um and leaving him with absolutely nothing because i know he likes to wax poetic but ben said it right there i'm gonna keep it on with the victor loturi man crush just like i did in part one i do think that he can break through though because he has just such a wide range of solid vision he's an excellent defender he reads the game very well if you want someone who is just an all-around dynamic number six, who can also play as a number eight, if you really want him to, I think he's the guy. But there are certainly a number of candidates that we can go with, many of which I will now let Alex do because uh, I think I might have stolen a few in part one. So this is how I repay him. 
Oh, in terms of a lot, a lot of good young prospects in midfield, Victor Latouri among them, a CPL graduate, and I mean another name we threw out a few weeks ago, and you know that that I'm certainly keeping an eye on a couple of them. I mean Alessandro Hojabapur, Sean Young, two different profiles for different reasons. You know, young, box to box, big body, improved his passing, his box arriving skills. He's someone he, he if he can continue to improve, keep an eye out. Hojabapur has already improved immensely. You know, lots to to like with how his profiles, you know, adapted. Another guy, I mean, we who maybe just fell through the cracks of Montreal in the sense of the hype train, but certainly we can't forget that there's a reason why at this time last year, despite being similar ages, Rita Zuhir was getting minutes over Ismail Kone. So we also can't forget that Rita Zuhir as an all-around number eight, he, you know, the one, one thing about Kone that we saw is that he has that bit of an X factor, a bit of a that flash, but Rita Zuhir is a very solid all-around uh, midfielder. And I think he also does have that flash in his game. He's just maybe someone who hasn't had a chance to show it yet. So I'm going to throw Rita here into that mix as well as someone as we saw at the U20s um, can certainly do a bit of a job. And then, you know, add, add in as well. I mean, Justin Smith, again, an easy, boring name, but I just think in terms of number sixes who could drop between the center backs, but also provide something on the ball. Canada's going to need that going forward if they're going to indeed shift to this 4-3-3. So in terms of pure player profiles, Again, we'd like to see Smith get minutes, and a reason, a big reason why is just that 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 unique profile that he offers that Canada needs in the middle of the park. And there are, as I said in part one, a lot of really good young number eights that are in the systems at some big European clubs. Like even just going through Portugal, there are a number of guys like Jordan Alvarez, Boa Vista, um, Lucas Dias. I know he's not really a number eight, more of a number 10 slash winger type, but there's another guy Portuguese based who could probably come in at some point and, and do a really good job. Geronimo Sabatasso at Empoli. Um, Matteo Schiavone, who can again play as a winger, but also can play as a number eight. He's with Bologna. Um, Hugo Tavares with Pashus. Like there are so many number eights coming through. And I mean, I mean, Gabriel Pellegrino, he was on the under 20 team and started most of the games at the CONCACAF under 20. So there's just a number of guys in that kind of 17, 18, 19 age bracket where even by 2026, if they're kind of knocking on the door, those are guys that you can even look ahead as being key pieces for 2030 and beyond as well. But certainly over the next couple of years, these are pretty crucial times in their development. It'll be fascinating to see how they pan out over the next couple of years, especially those 18, 19 year olds who are starting to get a bit too old for those youth squads. Can they push on and end up making something early in their professional careers? Yeah, and Pete, Peter, again, all-encompassing list. One name I'll throw in because I know you've uh, highlighted him, and I feel like if we're going to go into that detail, of course, Malcolm Simmons of Benfica as well. Um, he, he had a strong start to his life with Benfica, transferred there in the summer, played a few games. Minutes have been harder to come by, but he's young. He's a number eight who can play as a number six, can drop between the center backs, um, you know, good you know his passing what will come along but ball winning midfielder um you know he's got those physical attributes and the passing will improve and just look at the benfica system that that benfica system churns out 70 million players like they're nothing (laughs) and not to say malcolm simmons is going to be the next gonzalo ramos or darwin nunez or joao felix but in terms of a, a developmental academy you do have to be excited as well by a canadian playing in the benfica system 
And from Jesse at Jesse underscore JM, not game related, but more related to the 2026 World Cup. I see early predictions for the starting lineup and a lot have Kennedy over Miller. Why is this? Does Kennedy have a higher ceiling? Alex also had this in his future lineup. Yeah, in terms of Scott Kennedy versus Kamal Miller, honestly, it's tough. I think it's very close between the two. That's not to say I see, you know, Kennedy in terms of his long-term future being grandly better than and then uh, Kamal Miller. It's just there's the fact that Scott Kennedy, he has a lot of tools that make him a higher ceiling. In fact, there's a reason why Kamal Miller started these games. And even if Scott Kennedy was healthy, Kamal Miller would start. Kamal Miller right now in terms of his passing, in terms of what he's shown at Montreal, he's a better player today. But Kennedy does you know, appear to have a slightly higher uh, ceiling. He's strong in the air. He's got the height. He's, of course, got the attributes you can't teach. Um, He's, you know, he's got good speed as well, which Canada can certainly use a bit more of in the back line. One of the fastest players in the second Bundesliga, uh, Kennedy is as a center back, which you can't overlook. Uh, Just for him, what he'll need to do to catch up and, you know, catch up to Miller and where Miller has the edge is just he needs to work on his passing, just being smoother with his passing, being a little more natural. Uh, you know, with his with this ball progression as well as his positional awareness. But in terms of his ceiling, he does have a quite fascinating overall player, you know, p- profile given that he's shown good, you know, a good baseline of ball progressing a- attributes, good attributes in terms of winning the balls in the air. And you see that height, you see the speed. Um, you do wonder what it's going to look like when it all comes together in four years time. So it's going to be a fascinating battle. Don't get me wrong. If you're going to throw another name in like Derek Cornelius as well as they're all similar ages, they're all left footed. For all we know, we could see them flip flop as we have the last few years. Like we have to remember three years ago, Derek Cornelius was the clear number one between those three. And now things have changed so much. So Kennedy does certainly have a high ceiling, but don't I'd say don't sleep on Miller and Cornelius. I put Kennedy in as my prediction and we'll I guess we'll just see how how that age is on that front. If it ends up being right, you're going to be like, look, I knew it all along. And then if you end up being wrong, you're like, well, as I said off the top, I said it was a pretty close battle. So either way you win. Cover my bases. <laughs> the positive for Canada in that circumstance, though, is there will be two center backs likely that you're talking about starting at the 2026 World Cup. And when you think sort of the center back situation over the last several years, you as well as going into this cycle, you've been relying on sort of the Stephen Vittoria, Kamal Miller pairing. And so if you can develop any more center backs, if Scott Kennedy can can come into that role and, and take it for 2026, that's a positive all around, even if it, it means Kamal Miller is on the bench. I don't think Kamal Miller is out of the squad, but I would definitely see that depth being a positive. But a question from Mike Lafave. Estacchio, Kone, and Justin Smith are, are the future of the midfield for the CAN-MNT. Obviously, Smith needs some game time, but he looked head and shoulders above the rest at the U-20s. He did, and I don't think it's a coincidence that himself, as well as all the CPL guys, were probably the most consistent and best players on that squad. And that's shocker because they had professional minutes under their belts, or were just that pedigree of players, certainly Justin Smith would be, where... You just drop him into any system, any situation, and he'll adapt. Like, he is that good, technically speaking. But no doubt, he impressed. It's a shame he's not getting minutes with QRM, which we all kind of suspected he might have. Even though their defense was relatively settled and and experienced, they needed some depth there. You thought maybe he could fill in, even in the number six role, where they were a little thin too, and that hasn't really happened. But 
He's still 19, so there is still time for him to get some meaningful minutes here. Hopefully next season is when it happens. He could come back to Nice and have a really strong preseason, make that squad, and who knows, maybe he gets some minutes there. But they are probably the three guys that you look at, whether it's based on how much potential they have or how much current ability they have, and you say, yeah, they're probably the three that are very clearly above everybody else. Yeah, and I think if you look at those three, at least at the bare minimum, what you can say is that those are the three profiles you want in Canada's midfield going forward. Like you want a guy like Smith who's good on the ball, can play between lines, can shift, you know, to be a CB on the ball, but also push up and be a number six, just because I think those sorts of players are crucial in the modern game. Look at any team worth their salt at this World Cup, for example. You know, a lot of their success, it's 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 coming off the backs of guys like Sofiane Amrabat or, you know, Aurelien Choumeni with, with France and those sorts of players that can drop, but also, you know, just be so good on the ball. So Smith has that profile. And then guys like Kone, Nustakio Kone, you know, a guy who can be on the ball, but also be a box arriver, a guy who can disrupt, get in the box, be defensively sound. And then a guy like Nustakio who can cover all sorts of ground. I think at the very minimum, even if maybe a guy like, Smith, because I think we can say safely say Kone and Ustakio have better chances of reaching their potential just because, you know, Kone is about to go to Watford, Ustakio is right. playing every week. That's not a bold, you know, if we're going to use the boring FIFA analogy, they're at a higher overall in their development. So we know there is more of a chance to hit their potential. And Smith is, you know, maybe a bit far off. But I, I think in terms of profiles, if in four years there's someone who's ahead of Smith, uh, it, it will be because they have shown that profile, but maybe have, have gotten the minutes, have gotten the reps, and I think that's a good thing. But certainly should at least be shooting for three players in that similar sort of profile because that, that's the kind of midfield that that dominates the game right now. It's a, a six who can play on the ball. It's a number eight who can arrive in the box and be a disruptor and be good on the ball, and then a number eight who can just cover all sorts of ground and maybe fill in some gaps you have at CB, fullback, winger, all that. And yeah, I think Estacio and Kone have already proved that they can play at the level and that they're going to reach that potential that so many are hoping that they can reach. And Estacio, maybe he's already reached that potential in terms of already starring in the Champions League, scoring the Champions League, standing out with Porto. Uh, and I think he's going to continue that as well. And for Kone, I mean, the, the ceiling, there's no ceiling on how, how good Kone can get with, with his development. But as we move on to Matt Paternostra, Canada soccer needs to invest in many things as we get closer to 2026. How much do they need to work on growing the Canadian Premier League, having more camps for youth teams, a women's domestic league, more friendlies versus top teams for the CanMNT, etc., etc. Now on the women's domestic league, we'll get into that more in a section coming up because women's domestic league, when you asked this question, was not announced yet. Now there is a women's domestic league in the process of being built by Diana Matheson and Christine Sinclair Canada Soccer today also somewhat throwing their support behind yeah. it in a bit of a tangential way. So we'll we'll get into all of that in a later section. That's going to be the final section of this podcast. But getting into those other aspects of what does Canada Soccer need to do? I I think it's integral to grow the Canadian Premier League because when we say that Canada is a soccer country, Canada is becoming a, a footballing nation. Well, what is that in Canada? Is that supporting the CPL? Is that supporting European teams? Is that supporting the national team? It's a different sort of picture than when you look at traditional soccer countries, whether that's in South America, Asia, Europe, where you've had these longstanding entities where people have grown up and supported the clubs. 
it's very different what a soccer country looks like in Canada. And I think an important part of that is going to be growing the CPL. For sure it is. And when you consider that the CPL has only had four seasons of existence, two of which were pandemic affected, the fact that they're already at this stage or that the national team is already at this stage, the men's national team, of course, that's quite remarkable to think about because that's the one thing that I think kind of got lost in the World Cup postmortem and comparing all these countries to each other. I know we touched on it a couple episodes ago, but Canada did not have a top flight domestic league until 2019. Just put that into perspective. And then three years later, they're at a World Cup. So really, it is quite astonishing that they were able to do that despite having just three Canadian MLS clubs, a few guys on the American MLS clubs, and they were still exporting players to Europe and all that. But no doubt, growing the CPL, and we're starting to see clubs start their academies. They're starting to invest more into the youth side as money starts to roll in. Sure, it's not as profitable as they might want it to be, but in time, it'll get there. I think we expected the first five years to be a growing process, but that's for sure going to be the foundation of the men's program going forward. And then as we'll touch on in the women's section, having a domestic league for the women is also going to be integral because you see how all these other countries are heavily investing into the women's game, countries like Mexico, Colombia, many countries in Europe. And as the money starts to be invested into those leagues and as the fan support grows, the national teams improve. And it's the same thing here with the CPL and the men's national team. So the further it gets, the more it grows, the more it's going to help the program, no doubt. It's scary how much of a unicorn Canada is in, in soccer, if you look at it. I mean, you look on the men's side just... Even before you look at guys like Owen Hargraves coming through, Hasmir Begovic, um, you look at Yassine Bounou, Fakayo Tamori as well. Uh, apologies for first time. I maybe should have put a warning that I was going to throw some of those Triggered. names out there. But you, you get you get the point in terms of just the talent that those – and then the fact that you know in, ML, in 2007, MLS comes to Canada and within the last decade we've seen guys like Alfonso Davies – uh, you know, Dejan Buchanan all come through that pathway. It was just wild because it feels like every time that a new pond is open, more talent comes out. And that's what's scary, like in terms of positive, like League One Ontario. The fact that there's multiple League One Ontario alumni at the World Cup, again, League One Ontario hasn't been around for that long. You look at Dane Sinclair, Kamal Miller, Alistair Johnston. You know, there's six super draft picks as well at the World Cup was also something yeah. that kind of blows my mind. If you think about it, that that many players have gone NCAA and go to the Canadian League and you go on the women's side as well. Like countless examples of these players going to NCAA, you know, doing their thing, going professional and then ending up pushing to the top level. Uh, so in terms of Canada, I mean, we know it's a unicorn. It's a huge population, 38 million. And what's the untapped part is that there's a lot of immigrants. And we're seeing now communities uh, that have that strong makeup tend to do well, like Brampton, as we're seeing. We're seeing Quebec as well, a strong immigrant population, a lot of soccer players coming out. So all this to say is that you just got to keep developing the pathways for these players to get noticed. So more, you know grassroots initiatives more league one teams but then more cpl you want to grow the cpl offer those opportunities more women's league more women's league one teams as well as the men's league one teams and then 
that's just the, the creating the player pool. And then from there, it's okay. How do you harness? How do you nurture? How do you develop? And that from there is national team camps. That's, you know, national team identification. That's national team just getting together for these sorts of camps, investing money in the youth development. Because again, it's kind of remarkable if we look at how much of Canada being a unicorn, how they've done what they have, despite having no men's or women's professional league. It just shows you that, okay, well, if you provide the opportunities, things could uh, only stand to to get better. Because I think if there's one thing, if most people can agree on, there's talent in Canada. We can certainly all you know talk about. Okay, is there is there the talent nurtured in the right way? Are the right setups in place? Pay to play, all that, all of that we could discuss for hours. But there's one thing that's for sure: it's there's talent. So you just got to find all the possible avenues to nurture it. Hundred percent. And as we move on to the topic of John Herdman and his leadership with the Canadian men's national team, a question from Dan Clark. Will John Herdman be the manager of the hashtag CanMNT in 2026? I know what his contract says, but in your heart of hearts, will he be on the sideline for Canada at the next Men's World Cup? I would say he's not going to be there. I think he takes either a club job or another national team job. You're, he's not going to say that at the World Cup. He's not going to say that this is his last World Cup. He's not going to resign right after the World Cup, Canada's first in 36 years. So I would take what he said with a, a large grain of salt um, because I don't think he's going to be there in 2026, to be honest. Well, and it's also, I think, partially to do with there's so much uncertainty in terms of how much the Federation and the program can grow just based on look at all the topics he was talking about in the lead up to the world cup and how much emphasis he put on the windfalls that come through qualifying for back-to-back world cups and the potential that is unlocked by getting what he did estimate to be at least 20, if not upwards of $30 million into the program and into the Federation. If he doesn't get what he wants in that regard, and he's entertaining all this interest from elsewhere, sure. Then the odds obviously go up that he does leave the thing is i'm not saying this is fair i'm not saying that this is what ends up happening i wonder if prospective clubs looked at john herdman and thought i don't know if he's the right fit for us based on the f croatia comments based on maybe the the stubbornness tactically at times and and things like that is that a fair assessment to make based on a three-game sample size definitely not but it is a big stage let's say english clubs look at that and go i don't know if we really want to be getting involved with all that that's just a theory i'm floating out there that's just me playing devil's advocate i'm sure he's still going to have plenty of interest especially if he sticks around wins a tournament with Canada, maybe does well at Copa America in 2024. And I think also crucially, he doesn't get an improved contract. Because as I mentioned a few times, seventh lowest paid coach at the tournament. Nick Bontis in a media call a couple weeks before the tournament did say that one of the priorities is going to be getting Bev Priestman and John Herman new and improved contracts. We'll see if that ends up happening. What I will say is, let's say Herman leaves or Canada soccer, and I'm not even saying that this is even remotely a possibility, but let's just throw it out here for a hypothetical. Canada soccer said, you know what? We can do better than John Herdman, especially on the big stage. We'll look for somebody else. Who are they going to bring in on their budget? Who's going to do just as good of a job or better of a job than Herdman? The list is small, maybe Carlo Ancelotti, but I'll also throw this out to you here. Carlo Ancelotti is probably going to be targeted by the FIGC to coach Italy. 
So that could remove the only tangible upgrade from Herdman to somebody else if Ancelotti takes that Italy job. So I do think he still sticks around in 2026. I do think enough money will come in even after the players get their cut, even with CSB siphoning off most of, if not all of, the sponsorship money. And I do think he sticks around because I think he wants to see this out. And given that the team is only going to get better, the player pool is only going to get deeper, I think he sees that potential. But the caveat is, if he does not get what he wants in the next couple of years, and the interest is still there from elsewhere, then yeah, the risk is still there that he could leave. Yeah, I think in terms of Herdman, I think to simply answer the question, I think he'll be there. And I just think if you look at a lot of factors, I just think that there's a lot of benefit for him to stay around. Because, of course, you look at interest elsewhere. If the interest is there, you'd always consider it. I mean, as a coach, especially one who might be underpaid relative to his peers, of course, you're going to consider it. But, uh, you know, you do wonder as well that from now one thing that Herdman's reputation is 100% sure of, like, no doubt, is that Herdman can build up programs. Like, he went to New Zealand, he built up that women's program. He came to Canada, he built it from ruin to a team that was on the bronze medal. He took this men's program and he got them to, you know, a men's World Cup. But also another thing that teams might look at is like, okay, you went to New Zealand, you left, uh, you left to go to Canada with the women's team you get the two bronzes but then someone comes in and gets the gold he takes what you've done and pushed it over the line now for this men's team you know herdman leaves now and say another manager comes in and wins them a a gold cup wins them a copa america makes them to a a round of 16 or a quarter final of a world cup again this is all just throwing random things out there but then all of a sudden herdman's reputation can be one of oh but he builds and gets you to a certain point but then maybe there's someone who comes and pushes you over the line uh so in terms of that herdman could also benefit from this four-year cycle just Mm -hmm. because he's he's built up such this momentum of dual nationals rapport with the players all that that if he can go out and prove and grow from this you know quote-unquote disastrous term if you want to put that term on it just i'm using more the outside perspective or what some might have had of oh canada was disappointing if he goes out and now wins some trophies improves on that performance especially in 2026 at home he could have a very strong base to then, okay, I, he can really pick and choose his options. Be like, look, look what I did. I took them. I took, I saw this project through, I, I pushed it over the line. And then, then again, from Canada's perspective, of course, it would make sense to bring him in. I, uh, guys like Ancelotti, of course, you'd love an Ancelotti. You'd love a Guardiola. You'd love a Klopp. But there's just a reality that most of those guys, unless you somehow throw more money than is possible that you have possible at them or if they have this random change of heart and one day guardiola goes full infantino wakes up and says today i feel canadian and then maybe you have a chance but the odds of that (laughs) are extremely incrementally low and you shouldn't bank on that so there's also just the fact that in terms of better options unless one emerges you know all of a sudden uh, doing well in four years you have say in four years you have 15 tier one players say herdman and, and company won a gold cup or made it to the final six of a Copa America, did well in the World Cup. All of a sudden, that's a lot more attractive job. So from Canada's perspective, you can get a quote-unquote upgrade. And then from Herdman's perspective, if you've done all that, you can push up to a higher level. Of course, that's a risk-reward proposition. But you know, for a guy like Herdman, I feel like, again, you're looking at some of the offers. Do you want to go be a championship manager? Just in the sense that the championship's so volatile. Yeah, you can get promoted and you're a Premier League pro- manager, but also you could get relegated and you're in League One. And then, then what? 
you left your, your job for that. So I think it's a bit of a more risky proposition, of course, staying around the whole second cycle nonsense, which I think is a myth, isn't like five of the top eight managers at the World Cup, all second cycle. Correct. But again, you, you you could go disprove that myth, win some trophies, help him while Canada helps their profile. Technically, too, Didier Deschamps is in his third cycle. So there you True. go. Like all the more reason. He's been there 10 years, which is kind of nuts to think about. But, you know, uh, one of the points you bring up, Alex, is interesting. There's also no guarantee that John Herdman goes to the club game and succeeds because it's a lot different preparing over weeks and months at a time for a couple of opponents. It's a lot different to have to prepare for, let's just say, one team on the weekend, and then three, four days later, you got to turn around again and then prepare for another team in another game after that. So that does make it tougher, too. Well, I didn't. You see a guy like Mar- Marcelo Bielsa, phenomenal planner, and you even see what he did at Leeds where he just built up this club and was so methodical with his scouting, his pregame reports, and then you go into a three bad three-month spoon, and they're like, okay, screw all this work, this project you've put in, you're gone. And that's also another risk you play at the club game is that you could have a bad two months and then that's it. And I mean, of course, national team is no different, but the fact that you're able to plan over four to eight years in club soccer, you do always have to kind of live on a month to month basis just because a bad month sometimes can cost you their job, especially if he goes to England again, the pressure cooker. Uh, so it does make you wonder that if you're going to go to a place like England, the right offers would have to be there. And a question from at WMA Prez. What are the bare minimums for Herdman to keep his job with Canada? Hypothetically, surely a quarterfinal loss to Panama or Honduras or, God forbid, a, a loss to Haiti again in the Gold Cup gets him sacked. I think we're beyond the point of just proud of you guys now, right? I would say it's hard to imagine, but maybe he does see the sack with a loss like that. But then again, he's such a builder and such a long-term process guy that he's really looking towards 2026 that I don't know whether if at a 2023 Gold Cup that happens and you trip up like that, especially if it's sort of an A minus B plus Canada squad, that you blow everything up. Because firing the coach of a national team is blowing everything up. And I don't think that Canada soccer is in an advantageous position to do that. No, I agree with that. And look, I'm going to say this. Joshua Cloak wrote about this in The Athletic, and I do agree with this stance. If Canada really is now a footballing nation, I think we also need to take the kid gloves off when it comes to the coverage. That doesn't mean that we have to be overly critical all the time. But if John Herdman, let's just say they do lose in a quarterfinal to a Panama or whatever the case is, yes, you have to be critical that that would happen because if you have expectations of winning a tournament and you don't meet them, yes, you have to be critical. But also, we go back to what we've been talking about pretty much the entire World Cup. Small sample size, tournament setting, one-offs do happen, right? Like that Haiti game, no doubt was a debacle. Absolutely inexcusable that they lost that after going 2-0 up. And the fact that Herman didn't adjust in the second half to counter what Haiti was doing is inexcusable. But also, that never happened again, really, right? So you almost have to look at it from both sides. And that's why I feel like, look, Herman would no doubt be under pressure. He should be under pressure. But I think just to fire your coach who, unless there was evidence that things are starting to slow down, the team isn't really responding to him, all these other factors, that's when I think 
you consider maybe making a change. But if this happens out of the blue, then no, you you keep them around despite the result. But you absolutely do criticize the final result for sure. Yeah, I think it's one where I agree with what what is said in the sense that Canada is certainly past the proud of you guys now moment in that you know the i think just you know being making the world cup was kind of the last of that moment it's like okay you had your learning lessons you had your your time with the big boys now it's time to take those learnings it's time to go apply it's time to dominate Concacaf and show it wasn't a fluke but yeah i think it's one of those because of that it's going to be it's also going to be extremely soon so i think realistically yes herdman does need to make a semi-final of the gold cup let's not kid ourselves i think also canada has to make the final four of nations league at a bare minimum and depending on their draft make the final just because again with the group they're in against curacao honduras two good teams i think canada should still make the final four of nations league uh, but also it's it's one of those where it feels like it would be extremely surprising if he gets fired there unless it's a disaster unless it's a debacle where guys are playing horrendously canada's not adjusting etc because small sample size and all that what i'll say is because of that if things go sideways in either of those tournaments, it's going to be one where his seat gets hot. And that's a whole different story because then for him, that's not good news. Cause if you have a Copa many cause your next tournament and your seat's hot, that could all of a sudden uh, shift things a little bit. And now, you know, all of a sudden you're a loss against Bolivia away from uh, looking for a new coach. So I do think he, you know, the seat can really start to get hot now. I think after this world cup, now that we've had the four years, but it would take a disaster for him to get fired this year. Uh, but again, a hot seat. I don't think Herman uh, would want a hot seat given what lies ahead with 2024, 2025. So uh, we'll, we'll, to be seen, what would happen in that case? And I think it would take a bit of a change of perspective from Canada soccer to really make that seat hot, because I think a lot of the outlook from the Federation is not necessarily a we're proud of you boys type thing, but a long-term goal. And so even if, even if you do have a coach that does have a hiccup, whether that's a string of bad results and not making the semifinal of Nations League, not making the semifinal of the Gold Cup, you have the potential that Canada Soccer just sees it as hiccups along the way and a building process towards 2026. Because maybe you're looking at these lineups and you're looking at guys like Justin Smith getting time with the national team and you're gambling to see whether guys can fit in and you're using these games instead of friendlies. And so you you get that kind of gamble in it. And so does his seat get hot with a string of losses? Sure, it would probably get hot, but I don't think the association would necessarily see it the same way, especially if the lineup decisions are as such where you're giving opportunities to younger players. But as we move on to Copa America chat, potentially a tournament that Canada will get a spot in in 2024 as was asked by bruce reykovich canada needs competitive games outside of Concacaf over the next three and a half years there's talk of the possibility of canada going to the Copa america in 2024 when will we know if this is a possibility or even confirmed from what memory serves when the 2016 Copa america centenario was confirmed and the format was announced and the teams that qualified were announced. It was basically about a year out. So I think we'll probably find out in 2023, knowing how Colmebol works, they tend to keep things to the last minute. 
And I think in this case, we're probably going to find out, I'd say a year out that the U.S. is hosting it. These are the invited teams. These are the teams who may have to qualify to get in because I believe they did use the Gold Cup as qualifying for Copa America or some sort of tournament to get your to get yourself into Copa America in the end. I would have to look that up again, but I remember there were some teams who got in based on results from a previous tournament. Could have been the Caribbean Cup for the Caribbean teams and all that. I can't quite remember. Um, but anyway, that's when we find out when Canada would go. And I mean, it goes without saying, guys, it would be massive if they went because you are, first of all, testing yourself in another tournament setting in front of what will be, for the most part, good to sold out crowds, depending on the opponent, of course, and depending on who you get in your group, possibly some marquee opponents in there. So you kind of knock down two birds with one stone in a way, because that was probably the one criticism you had of the team pre-2021 was that they didn't have enough marquee games together. And even up until the World Cup, they didn't have a lot of marquee games together either. That becomes less of an issue if you are able to get out of your group at Copa America, maybe win a round or two and face some good teams along the way. Yeah, I think the Copa America would be just huge in that regard because you look at the quality of opposition. You look at just the difficulty of that tournament, what it means for South American teams. Again, there's not this Gold Cup-like stigma around the Copa America (laughs) where, you know, Gold Cup, there's just the unfortunate reality that Mexico and U.S., you know, seem to care about it every three, four years. And it's unfortunate because it's a great tournament. It's a tournament where teams should send their A squads like Honduras, Panama, El Salvador, all these teams do and care about. And Copa America, there's that. Uh, Again, you look at the pot structure. The top four teams in South America right now in FIFA rankings are Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Colombia. Imagine how good that would be to get just a game in a tournament setting against teams like that. Because it's one thing to play Brazil or Argentina in a friendly. It's a whole other when they're fighting to win a Copa America, which, as we've seen, uh, means so much to these nations to, to, to win. Even we had when Brazil won in 2019, it was a huge deal. Argentina, as we know, last year, uh, you know, it was everything for them to win. So for Canada just to get these competitive games in that setting is immense. And then from there, yeah, it's a chance to just prove what you're able to do against some top caliber opposition. I mean, most of, most of South America's teams, you look, they, they have six teams inside of the top 30 of the FIFA rankings. CONCACAF only has two, really, it, it, barely three, depending on where Costa Rica and Canada were over the last year. And then you add in the fact that Ecuador is sleeping there at 44th and should be way higher. You look at the quality teams. I think this would be a, a no-brainer for many reasons. And from Felipe Vallejo, if Canada do get invited to Copa America, if Herdman is still at the helm, do you go with the same mentality of trying to play on the front foot and proving your ability to go toe-to-toe that Canada had at the World Cup? Or do you go with a more pragmatic approach to try and win games? You go with whatever you need to win the game. Because that's what Canada's mentality and approach and philosophy is all based on, is winning games. Right. And they did that a number of ways in qualifying. They tried to do it a number of ways at the World Cup. It didn't always come off, but you could see that the approach was there. They have set up in a very compact and disciplined 4 4 2 after scoring early and trying to catch teams on the counter. They have opened it up and tried to press from the front and force high turnovers and then hit teams in transition the other way, playing vertically, playing with possession. I don't think it's really either or. 
it just depends what the game state, what the opposition, what the whole thing calls for. Um, I assume Herman is still going to want to play as much as he can on the front foot. But I think as we saw at the World Cup, anything can happen. And sometimes you need a plan B, a plan C, a plan D to fall on. And I think that's what you really want to see from this team because they have the tactical flexibility. They have the tactical discipline when they want to have it. It's all about being able to shift in game, which they have done throughout qualifying in those tournament settings as well. When the pressure really starts to amp up and you're facing against what is or what could be a top five, ten side in the world. Yeah, and I think the caliber, based on the caliber of this tournament, you want Canada to go out and play with their identity. Because again, I think what's it's no secret that in terms of Canada's tactical X's and O's, there isn't a defined setup, and that's what the way they want it. As we know, they want to be unpredictable, they want to shift formations, etc. But just because you don't have a flexible or just because you don't have a defined formation doesn't mean you don't have a defined identity. And I think one thing that we've seen from Canada is when they're at their best. They want to be on the front foot. They want to press. Uh, they want to defend in compact fashion. They want to be aggressive enough, but you know, aggressive in the right way. So obviously over the next two years, they're, they're going to need to develop and harness and finesse that identity. Again, find a way to play that identity, maybe in a 4-3-3 and define that formation, define the tactical setup a bit more. Uh, but whatever the, the final product of that identity ends up looking like in 2024, you'd like to go out and see them play it because uh i think if you're going to go to big tournaments and just shift the identity that you play every other time then what's the point <laughs> at that point you may as well just give jose Mourinho a call and, and and have canada be an expert of just being hard to beat up behind the ball and go from there so take whatever that identity is and run with it in two years time and from vince alvarado i suppose the main question is and could you guys confirm if we could actually send a strong team to the copa america Brian Shirietta mentioned that because we're invitees, clubs could say no to releasing players. Yeah, they can, but it's also, I would assume, at least at this point, because it always is a FIFA-sanctioned event, it's a FIFA, on the FIFA calendar, they will probably have to send teams. Plus, the federation, the players, um, they will know the importance of that tournament, and they will go. Plus, if it's 16 teams and Comebol and CONCACAF are both involved, just like the Copa América Centenario was... They're going to release players anyway. So yeah, there's maybe a chance that one or two teams might say, ah, I don't know, this guy's her. We don't really want to send them, which is kind of what we saw at the Gold Cup. Like that does happen, but clubs aren't going to be able to just outright refuse to release players if Canada's like, hey, uh, we want to call up, you know, let's I'll throw an example here. We want to call up Alfonso Davies for the tournament. They send him an, an invite. They send him a letter. He accepts it. Bayern can't just say, oh no, he can't go especially if he accepts it and it's a FIFA window and or a FIFA event. Yeah. This is where all the, the palm greasing, maybe not the right word, but the right idea that comes into play with Canada over the last few years where they've massaging relationships, yeah. being nice to Bayern Munich when they call for Alfonso Davies answering the phone. This is one where all that, that palm greasing comes into play and you say, look, you do what you got to do. Sometimes even if it's as simple as look, you take him now to Copa America in, in the summer and since the next window won't be qualifiers because Canada obviously doesn't have to do them in September, say, look, we won't call them up for September. You do what you got to do just because I think, again, the, this the sort of experience that playing in a competitive Copa America against top South American teams would just usurp the value that playing September friendlies against a top team would provide just because those 
sort of friendlies don't you know the different pace of play just there's not that nationalistic desire of trying to win one of the most important trophies in international soccer uh so i think yeah you do what you you need to do in in, in copa america even if it means saying hey we won't call up alfonso davies in, in the september window so he can stay with you guys and find his fitness at the beginning of a new season and from doug mclaughlin hi guys thanks to the podcast and the welcoming community if the hashtag can mnt does get an invite to the copa america how does that tournament structure work do i have to figure out fifa pots again can Canada get out of pot four in time for the draw with Nations League and Gold Cup? Well, I would assume it's going to be similar to the Centenario, so 16 teams, which means you're going to have four groups of four teams, top two, qualify for the quarterfinals, and then it goes on from there. Traditionally, what the Copa America has done is they've invited two teams to make it a 12-team tournament, because obviously 10 in Comebol, and then the top two in each of the three groups three groups of four, of course, automatically qualify for the quarterfinals and the two best third place teams across the three groups also join them. That's typically how it's worked. So let's just say the US and Canada only got invited. I I can't imagine they would just say no to Mexico, but using it as an example, they could still finish third in a group and get through. But because this will be a 16 team Copa America, likely in the United States, it would still be just a very straightforward four groups, four teams, top two advanced to the knockout stage. And then in terms of the pots and all that, it usually is determined by FIFA ranking, whether or not it's a 12-team tournament or a 16-team tournament. So basically, right now, I think based on Canada's world ranking, entering the um, World Cup, and then if you look at the Copa America Centenario and, and the seeded or unseeded teams there, they would be somewhere around pot three or four at that point. Like they'd be a high to middle seated pot three team, depending. I believe in the Centenario, they took, I believe it was the lowest ranked CONCACAF teams and put them in pot three. And then the lowest ranked CONMEBOL teams and put them in pot four. Because I remember Peru was in pot four and then still advance to the quarterfinals because I think they got Haiti out of pot three if I if my memory isn't failing me. So it really depends, but typically, no matter what, they have used FIFA rankings to determine the seeding for the tournament. Peter, just to uh, throw out there, Canada is going to have some work to do in that front because Canada is currently ranked, assuming Costa Rica, Mexico, and the U.S. are all invited. Canada is currently ranked 11th. Uh, among that group, if you do Comable plus the four who made the World Cup for CONCACAF, um, they are currently, even if you just do only Comable teams, they're ranked eighth, which is, again, low-end pot two team. And the U.S. is going to be there, so that pushes Canada yeah, pot into three. pot three. So they're very likely going to be pot three unless they change. And again, it shows the impact of the World Cup. Canada currently ranked 53rd when the next FIFA rankings drop. Uh, could even drop more depending on what happens in the other World Cup games with teams like Morocco wreaking havoc. Um, so it, it's, yeah, most likely, I think, if we're going to predict two years, a lot can happen. Canada did climb 50 ranks in one and a half years of World Cup qualifiers. And again, with Nations League, with Gold Cup coming up, those are competitive games. And if Canada does well, they will leapfrog fast. 
uh, compared to friendlies. But uh, my early prediction is that they end up being a low pot three team. And that's not bad. I think if you're Canada in that scenario, what you hope for is, again, I think no matter what you want, Brazil or Argentina. Yeah, it's hot. But I think if you're going to go to a Copa America, you want to play a you know a competitive Neymar or a competitive Messi and company. Uh, and then from there, you're a pot two team. You hope it's maybe a team that is a little isn't quite what their pot should suggest like a mexico maybe who's a pot two team but maybe they they might not they on paper they shouldn't be or you know even a team like an ecuador who should be a pot two team but if you're canada you'd fancy yourself playing the likes of an ecuador and then from there of course whoever you take for whoever from pot four but that's my way too early looking into the the draws based on things that can change a lot in two years so I actually looked at the pots from the Copa Centenario and I completely forgot about this. They seeded Mexico and the U.S. in pot one with Argentina and Brazil. The defending champions Chile and multiple time champions Uruguay were in pot two to make room for those two teams in pot one. And then the lowest ranked South American teams were in pot four. The lowest ranked CONCACAF teams were in pot three. So it was completely ass backwards at how they did it. Is is actually quite funny because a lot of those lower seeded teams from South America ended up doing well and knocking out all those lower seeded CONCACAF teams. So I guess who had the last laugh? But I mean that's just classic Golmeball CONCACAF levels of corruption. And as we know, the awarding of that tournament and the formation of that tournament was entirely built on corruption. Built on corruption, and that's never a good thing. But it was a fun tournament. I did get down to. Uh, Seattle to see a, a few games and uh, USA Ecuador. That was a entertaining one to say the least. And I do hold two passports, both Canadian and American. So nice to uh, support the Yankees, even though I grit wow. my teeth and do it sometimes. Uh, Blasphemy. You're kicked off the podcast. We need another new <laughs> born host. in New York city, Damn born man. in New York city, but Canada's got my heart. Okay. Unless, Jonathan David, but Canada's got my heart. Unless I am wearing my USMNT kit. Uh, which I did at the Women's World Cup uh, when, when it was in Canada. Wow, you were winning over yeah. so many Have you ever seen Jonathan David wear a, Canadian, oh, I uh, a U.S. shirt? I am certainly winning over a lot of our, our listeners right now, but born wow. in, in New York City, moved to Canada when I was two, uh, have been here ever since. So nobody sees the video of this on Zoom, but I do have a Canada jersey uh, hanging in my bedroom, uh, but I have my U.S. So he says. So he says, guys. I do have my USMNT kit uh, in the in the dresser as well. Anyways, moving on. A question from Androxide. Assuming a 16-team tournament with four team groups, what three commonable teams would be the most interesting group stage opponents in terms of Canada testing itself against high-quality teams in tactical matchups? Give me Argentina. Yeah, Argentina or Brazil. I'd also throw Ecuador in there because they're going to be damn good in this 2026 cycle. They were already pretty damn good in this cycle. They're only going to keep growing. Their young players are only going to keep getting better. I throw them in there. And just for the personal touch, Peru would also be interesting. And I'm not saying that just because I'm Peruvian, but Juan Reynoso, who replaced our beloved Ricardo Gareca as coach after two very successful cycles, by the way, another coach who lasted two cycles and did very well. Um, He... I think is the perfect coach for tournament football in that he will literally adjust to what the opponent is trying to do and maybe won't always play to the team's strengths, which can be frustrating, but it does get results in tournaments. He won the Mexican league with Cruz Azul after 20 plus years. So clearly he does something right. That could be an interesting kind of opponent to face knowing that they're going to try to adjust to what you do. And then you have to try to counter their counters. So those would be the three teams I'd look at automatically 
that would be the most intriguing for me. But really, all of the teams apart from Bolivia, because they never went away from home, would be fascinating to play against. I think if I'm going to pick my three, because I'll just pick straight up for once and uh, go from there. I think I'd go Brazil from pot one, just because, again, I love how deep they are. And even if they sent, for some reason, a B team, that B team is still a top fledged <laughs> national team, as we've learned. So I'd, I'd go Brazil just because, again, you want a scope of that matchup and just to feel what it's like to play Brazil, a world powerhouse Pot two, assuming again that Canada's pot three in this exercise, give me Ecuador. I agree with Peter on that. Mm-hmm. They're flexible, four four two. They're young midfielders. They're just such a developing team. They're going to be in such a great spot in two years. Give me a team like that for a, a Canada to test itself against, especially because of Ecuador. What's you know underrated with them is they got a lot of players, young players in MLS and in their local league, playing for teams like Independiente del Valle. And, Barcelona, De Quito, and all those teams that are going to go to top leagues the same way Purvis Estupinian and Moises Caicedo did a few years ago. So Ecuador is going to blow up soon. So I'd like love the name goes on yeah. and on and on. Like you, they're just you can going on, and they, they got a lot, they a lot of fascinating players uh, for Ecuador. And then from there, pot four team, a lot of interesting options. Um, I don't know where they rank these days, but maybe they might be pot three because I think. I think, yeah, I think Paraguay will probably pot through. I'd love to see Paraguay, Likely. especially if Miguel Almiron continues to pop off. So from those teams, I, I want a South American team. Canada plays enough CONCACAF teams. So give, go give me American. Venezuela. Give me, give me Venezuela just because Bolivia, uh, unless you're playing at La Paz, it's a, it's a different story. So I'll go Venezuela. Yeah. yeah. They have, I think I saw a stat. They have one win in their last like 70 away games which is absolutely absurd. And yet at home, just because of the altitude, they're practically unbeatable. So it's just the most interesting juxtaposition. But yet in the 90s, they had a pretty solid team. That's when they got a lot of wins away from home. But then once that generation retired, that was it for them. They haven't really won away from home since. And if Canada does get Brazil, you can't forget that Brazil was actually at the Gold Cup back in 1996, and Canada lost 4-1 to Brazil at the Gold Cup in 96. Mexico went on to win that tournament over Brazil in the final. And Canada, of course, also getting a 1-1 draw with Brazil back in 1994 as Brazil prepped for the 94 World Cup in the United States. But from Mark Carveo, do you think Comnibal would ever increase the participants for the Copa America to 16? That way you can have four groups instead of three and have three teams from the AFC, three from CONCACAF. The Gold Cup could also be juiced by adding a third place match and having the top three countries qualify. I don't entirely like that idea. It's almost too much of a World Cup for me. Yeah, but I will say this. If there's one thing South American soccer officials love, it's making lots of money. And the best way to do that is by including CONCACAF, specifically Mexico and the U.S. in tournaments. And I'm actually quite surprised we don't have a quote-unquote combined Copa America because keep in mind, it's literally the America's Cup, right? So you could actually have North America, South America competing in a tournament together and it would still make logistical sense. And the only real wrinkle in all of that is what then happens to the Gold Cup? What then happens to really the the Caribbean teams as well, because even if you incorporate qualifying for all of this, and I do actually remember what happened with the Copa Centenario, 
I believe it was Panama, Cuba, Haiti, and there was a fourth team in there that I just can't quite remember. They participated in one-off playoffs to qualify for that tournament. And it was Panama and Haiti, I believe, who won those games to get in to Copa America. So that would be the one thing I would ask is what becomes of the Gold Cup and what becomes of the other tournaments if you end up combining the two. But I do think that eventually at some point we're going to have a combined tournament where you're going to have 16 teams. It's going to be probably, I would assume, a, a fair amount hosted in the U.S., but also in Mexico, also in various South American countries. I would hate for it to become like the Gold Cup and only decentralized into just the United States, just like the Gold Cup is. But I, I do imagine we end up seeing that at some point. As much as the traditionalists want to keep it a 12-team tournament with the two invited teams. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see really where the Gold Cup falls into this. Because, I mean, there's no doubt that if you're Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, you want to, you know, be involved in the, you know, the, the Copa America. You want to play in that tournament. And, you know, financially, if you're comparable, there could be benefit to having those teams, especially if, you know, Canada and U.S. continue to grow. We, we all know the power that Mexico has. And, you know, the Copa America always does round their tournament to 12 because they have to. So, or sometimes they do the old 5-5 tournament, but in recent years, they've more rounded to the 12. So again, if you can round to 16, get the round number so you can get Canada, Mexico, and U.S. involved, sure. But I just think from CONCACAF, it's, I don't know how often they'd want that because also from CONCACAF, they want to continue to grow the Gold Cup. They want your Curacao's and Surinam's and all these countries that have, you know, exploded in recent years. They want, you know, more of these countries as they gain footballing and international independence from the other. Since a lot of those countries are colonies, of course, they want a strong, say, Cayman Islands in five, ten years. And Gold Cups are going to be the way for teams like Cayman Islands and Bermuda and all these countries to grow as well. So that's the one thing where I think CONCACAF is going to, try and they're obviously going to want to keep growing the gold cup and keep pushing the gold cup and you know yeah you could say money talks uh, but also there's the fact that the caribbean and central america is a huge voting block in fifa so they do have a fair amount of power as maybe we've learned uh can be dangerous in the fifa <laughs> uncovered documentary if anyone has, has seen so that's the one Jack juxtaposition Warner. so i like maybe they can find a way that to like the one solution I've seen is it is a bit cumbersome to have gold cups every two years. I do agree with that. Love the gold cup, but every two years is a bit much. It's, it's a uh, even with Copa America, like maybe you do something where you have a Copa America every four years and a gold cup every four years, the same year. And then every two years in between you do like a Pan American tournament where you figure out something and you do something in the middle. Again, I'm, no, not an all original idea. I've seen a lot of great Twitter users out there throwing the idea. I'd love to see something like that because you do want to grow the Gold Cup. You do want to keep growing CONCACAF as a whole. And CONCACAF's president, Victor Montagliani, confirmed to One Soccer's Christian Jack that they're looking to host a test event in 2025 similar to the Arab Cup in Qatar. No idea if this impacts the Gold Cup. Yeah, that yeah, that's, be fascinating. That, that will sorry. be fascinating. I also have that question because the Arab Cup was just the Arab countries who got together in Qatar and then they played the tournament. You can pretty much just do that with the Gold Cup and have games in Canada and the U.S. and Mexico. You can just split the hosts for, for 2025 and into that setting. That's they've personally that, what They've I done think. that before, though. They've yeah, and they, and they have. They yeah. did that in 2015, I want to say it was, is when they did that. And it worked fine. 
So I, I can see them doing that again. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious just because, again, this test tournament, you want it to, of course, test the facilities. And in Qatar's case, um, there ended up being this was still like a decent sized tournament with 16 teams and they kind of wanted to test the facilities, test transportation and all that. And I just I do wonder that's this is why I'm intrigued by it, because usually it's a small event. We know like it used to be the Confederations Cup long live the confederations cup bring it back please but used to be the confederations cup eight teams as we know all the confederation winners plus the host plus the world cup winner the year before the world cup they'd go and play it was a small scale event but i am curious because this year was 16 teams in the arab cup then it's a 48 team world cup with three different countries surely if there's a test event you want it to test right a 16 team gold cup doesn't exactly stress test doesn't exactly offer much of a, of a logistical test like okay yeah they can host a 16 team tournament like cool we know that it's not it's not exactly rocket science the u.s does it every two years so that's why i'm just intrigued maybe more intrigued by this than i should be because if they're gonna say a test event what is the scope of such event is it gonna be a cracked out Co- confederations cup for example i wouldn't hate that take the top four Finishers from a year from the Euro in 2024. Take your top four finishers from Copa America, top four from the Gold Cup, top four from the Asian Cup, top four from AFCON, and throw them in with the World Cup winners and call it a day. Do they do some something like the Commonwealth tournament where they call a bunch of old Commonwealth nations and do it like Commonwealth game style? Wow. Or you know, do they do Pan American style where you so you can get teams like Brazil involved, etc.? I'm just saying in terms of the this test event, it could actually be a lot more fascinating than it sounds at first glance. Just when you realize that they're going to test for a 48 team World Cup held across three countries, the potential to have fun with the test event is very high. And just to chip in on the test event question, it took me by a little bit of confusion that they would need a test event here. Because when you look at the stadiums, is the NFL not your test event? Is the NFL not showing you that these can host mega events all at the same time, week in, week out, week in, week out? The NFL and the MLS teams that play in NFL stadiums as well, which are are the main venues for the World Cup, well, that's stress testing with a massive money-making league that has a lot of similarities to the World Cup on a weekly basis. And Vancouver hosted an Olympic Games 12 years ago. So don't forget Cup. the BC Lions. Don't forget the World BC Cup. Lions. Yes, can't forget about the BC Lions for sure. <laughs> Former season ticket holder right here. Um, but like and one, the, the U.S. also hosted a World Cup too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> also true. So like, I, I do feel like, it, yeah, that, that was a bit strange that he did say that. I think it's just a way to, to, to get money into the Confederation and, and possibly to the host federations too. And probably, which is quite low on their list, potentially giving Canada some marquee matchups ahead of the World Cup too? I mean, and I think, yeah, again, don't read too much into test events in terms of that. Because again, Brazil in 2014, in 2013, they had a Confederations Cup. I don't think we (laughs) doubt the ability of Brazil to host a tournament. Ditto with, you know, (laughs) Germany in 2006. I think also test event can mean as much as for example, BC Place getting new grass. This could be a way for it to test out. Oh, Say they God. have a tournament at BC Place and the new grass Imagine. sucks. Well, then at least you know uh, through that test tournament, that the sorts of infrastructure as well. There's other investments being made, right? Like a lot of cities are going to have to test out new transit systems, etc. And at the end of the day, it's a cheap way. Let's, let's 
not kid ourselves. And again, that's why I want the Confederations Cup, just because you get the most marquee teams. It's a cheap way to get a fun marquee tournament. And for Qatar, that ended up being the Arab Cup. Um, but for North America, with the potential that you can have, if you can get these Brazils and Frances and Englands to somehow come here in some sort of form again, I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, a lot that you could dig into that. I think you could even sort of create your your dream World Cup. There's been talk about having sort of lockdown spots, the World Cup, so countries like Italy don't miss. Could you just sort of pick and choose your sort of soccer heritage countries in a way? Lots of different ideas that you could go about organizing a tournament that would be, in effect, a test event, but not really a test event in, in that way. But as we jump into some more player-specific things... Alistair Johnston has moved over to Celtic. Long rumored, but definitely short rumored when you consider how things get stretched out at a World Cup. Ishmael Kone is over to Watford, likely loaned out to Udinese. Joel Waterman also linked with a move to Europe, potentially Fenerbahce in Turkey. Tejan Buchanan attracting Serie A interest. Could we see him at Juventus at Napoli? Rian Wilkinson as well, resigned from the Portland Thorns after admitting that she had a friendship with one of the players on the Portland Thorns. And while she did go under an investigation and that proved no wrongdoing, Rand Wilkinson has resigned from the Portland Thorns. Merritt Paulson also leaving the Portland Thorns as an owner, keeping a hold of the Portland Timbers in Major League Soccer, but a lot move of moving pieces in the NWSL within the Portland Thorns. Christine Sinclair, of course, still there. Janine Becky now linked with a move abroad as well, back to the WSL in Tottenham. So there's a lot of movement with Canadian players, both on the men's and women's side and Portland, I think is probably dead, at least for now, as we get more into the men's side of things from Marco, wondering if there was anything I missed about why Alistair Johnston didn't end up going to Bologna. Celtic is a good spot, but it's not Bologna. Given the Saputo connection, it sounded like it made total sense initially. Yeah, he was linked there briefly, but I guess Celtic just stepped up their interest and that's a club that appealed to Johnston and stylistically he's a perfect fit there because first of all, as a person, Celtic wants upstanding players and Alistair Johnston fits that to a T. Obviously, we know this, but Josip Juranovic is probably leaving. They need a right-back replacement. They want a right-back who can contribute in all facets a right back who can defend really well, who can sometimes play as an inverted fullback and drift into those midfield areas and be able to hit some passes, who can defend in transition, who can attack in transition, who can get forward. That's all a long-winded way of saying Alistair Johnson's very flexible, and we know this, and that's exactly how Ange Postecoglou likes his teams to set up. He wants them to be flexible. He wants them to be high-octane and to have these well-rounded attributes. And that's what Alistair Johnston has. And he has a chance to get pretty meaningful minutes right off the bat, depending on what happens with Juranovic this January. So I think it, it it's a perfect move for him. Could have been nice to see him at Bologna in a top five league, but I think this is a pretty good fit, all things considered. Yeah, I'd like to see Johnston in a top five league, but also just throwing this out there as well, given the fact that Scotland is still part of the United Kingdom and the fact that Johnston did have a northern Irish passport you do also have to wonder a lot of the early links he was getting were always in the UK so it Correct. did seem at some point he was going to end up in the UK of course you'd like to see him in a top five league but Celtic a team on the cusp of Champions League maybe this can be a bit of a stepping stone you get in and then look elsewhere after and from on the rise with Alistair Johnson and Ishmael Kone already getting transfers 
Where do you expect others to move, such as Kamal Miller, Jonathan Azorio, Joel Waterman, Lucas Cavallini, James Pantamis, and possibly others? I would expect Cavallini to go either back to Mexico or to South America. For the others, Azorio may be a move to Europe. I could also very well see him re-signing with TFC. It's hard to imagine him not playing for TFC. And Kamal Miller and Joel Waterman, I think that the, the opportunities are endless for them. Joel Waterman has no shortage of suitors. Going to be very fascinating to see what happens with him over the next six months or so. Kamal Miller is really the big one in in my eyes, just in terms of you see the rise he has had, no pun intended, with on the rise asking the question. And he Hmm. deserves to make a, a marquee move. I think he could do really well in one of those quote unquote stepping stone leagues like a Belgium, a Netherlands, what have you, just with his abilities on the ball. But his speed on the turn, that could be something to watch for, same with his aerial weaknesses. But man, if he plays or shows the consistency of that Belgium game in those transitional moments, probably as part of a back four, maybe centering a back three, I think he has all the potential in the world to have a European career. Yeah, a lot of intriguing options there. Kamal Miller as well, reported by Tom Bogert that he's getting interest, no Mm -hmm. word of where. What leagues, etc. No surprise. I just give me a league where he can just do his thing on the ball, like a Belgium and Netherlands, but maybe a league as well that he can continue to improve the transitional side of his game. Um, Waterman as well is going to be interested to see if he stays or goes, just because I think if you're Montreal, you want to keep him. But if offers start to come in um, at this point, everyone's left Montreal, so you can't you can't consider there. Ozorio, I'd love to see in the championship again. Those links are interesting, and I'd like to see him play in a, in a league like that where you can use his cerebral uh you know nature uh, but also get to play in that that sort of physicality of the championship maybe in a in a club similar you know to like uh, throwing random names out like a Reading or a Sheffield or something like that I mean Cavallini I think it's him's going to be more of a central to or a South American or a country or Mexico James Fantem's a bit of a wild card do you feel like he's someone who maybe stays within MLS but if I'm not mistaken, this might be completely wild. Does he not have some sort of Greek passport? So yes. maybe he could also Correct. end up heading to Europe and uh, find some work there. And from Robert Rutledge, is there any chance that Larea gets recalled by Forrest? If not, where does he play next? It feels like he's not being talked about much as a guy who had a strong World Cup. He, I think he had a strong World Cup game against Belgium, but I also think that he should have gotten an opportunity at Forrest to start off with. But there's a chance he does get an opportunity there this year, especially considering sort of the potential possibility of their manager seeing the his way out. And possible relegation too, you never know. Um, he's good enough to play in the championship, that's for sure. I think he proved that in his bit part minutes last season. And it would be nice to see him get that opportunity again. If he doesn't end up sticking there, we know he got interest from Belgian clubs, whether it was Club Rouge or not with... Obviously, the Canadian influx there, we don't know, but they were intrigued. Same with other championship clubs loaning him for the season. And FC Dallas and Toronto FC, of course, were in pursuit of him until he ultimately sealed a move to go back to Toronto FC. So no matter what happens to him, he'll have suitors. But no doubt, I think that if he were to stick in Europe, even if it's just for another loan spell and then maybe goes elsewhere, I think that would probably be better for him because you could see that he was certainly good enough. For what it's worth, sounds like Richie Larea doesn't have a purchase option anyway. So (laughs) 
sounds like he will be heading back um to back back to to England in some form in the summer. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there because if then if Nottingham somehow stays in the Premier League, is it another situation where they throw too much money at their problems and you know ends up being no room for Larea? I'd like to see him stick around in Europe. Again, on one move I would have liked to see him make in the summer. Maybe it's not that unrealistic because they employ Marcello it is Olympiacos parent club owned mm-hmm. by the same owner of Nottingham Forest. Send him to the Greek league, go play for a top club, maybe get a taste of European soccer and then go from there. If not a team in the championship would be nice to see him break into and then at least get those minutes. So that say that team gets promoted. He can then prove that he's a, uh, worthy of playing in the Premier League but just based on what Forrest has done in terms of all these 18 million signings it's just hard to imagine that happening and uh, not all of it's Larea's fault and from Nordic G is Wilfred Nancy to Columbus actually good for Canadian soccer is he going to give Farsi real looks yeah I think he'll love Russell Rowe a, a lot just as in terms of how complete he is Mo Farsi is his ideal kind of wing back I think for sure they're going to get a lot of chances this season. I know they have Cucho Hernandez there, but you can always play them together. I think they're more than capable of doing that. And Nancy, as we know, kind of likes to play with those two players in behind a striker. So maybe Russell Rowe fits into that sort of 10 slash nine hybrid and and sort of plays off of Cucho. Yeah, I'm going to be interested because... Obviously, there's some tr- strong Canadian links there, but Tim Bispachenko, former TFC executive. Um, you've got now Wilf- Wilfred Nancy, former CF Montreal. Just need a white cap there for the the MLS Canadian trio mm-hmm. there. But uh, you, so yeah, you already got Russell Rowe and Farsi. One thing that I'm fascinated is since Montreal, since Nancy has such an ingrained knowledge of the Montreal system is as we've seen with Olivier Renard he's ruthless so he cut off Krifa Yao because he felt like he didn't fit the system you do wonder if Nancy's in Columbus for example already you wonder if he ends up giving Bezpanko a shout a, a, a shout being like oh get Krifa Yao so I do wonder if there's some more guys that are going to fall through the cracks guys like that Wubens Pasias mm-hmm. Krifa Yao guys who Renard has been a bit ruthless about like we like you we think you're great players but it's best for you if you move on so I do look at that as potential options just for for Nancy to have those sorts of guys have those sorts of looks and all of a sudden it makes things interesting in the super draft for example such a random thing to throw out but a lot of interesting Canadians in the super draft one for example is Moise Bumbito a 22 year old uh, from Montreal and he's actually looks like Look a fascinating that. prospect and, and we'll, we'll maybe we'll throw him out another time as we do come closer to the super draft but all of a sudden a guy like him from Montreal a center back yeah, maybe Nancy's looking at guys like that. So I would be interested to see. And you're missing this slight Whitecaps connection to the Columbus crew that is there. Eric Hurtado still playing there, of course. And Evan Bush. <laughs> and Evan Bush. Eric Hurtado spending a little bit more time with the Whitecaps than Evan Bush. But as we move on to the women's section of the podcast, an exciting time in Canadian women's soccer. Diana Matheson and Project 8 Sports announcing a women's league in Canada. Eight teams. Can one Canadian women's national team player per team that they're hoping to have a bit of a designated player structure towards eight to $10 million per franchise. So we're talking quite a large fee for potential owners. The Vancouver Whitecaps and headed by Steph LaBay are already involved. The Calgary Foothills getting involved as well. And then on Thursday morning, the Canadian Premier League and Canadian Soccer Association released statements about the new league. 
The CSAs was quite supportive from Nick Bontis and Bria Carharis. Of course, Bria Carharis going through her process of analyzing the feasibility of a women's league in Canada. And then this one seemingly catching them a little bit off guard. Diana Matheson and Christine Sinclair seeming to be willing to work with Bria Carharis and the CSA towards a women's league. The CPLs, a lot of the explanations I was seeing and kind of my first impression as well was there was a bit of mansplaining in terms of this is how you run a league. This is how you do this. <laughs> but then you think of who it's coming from and it's a bit of a pot calling the kettle black in a way because this is a league that maybe didn't analyze their markets as close as they nope. probably should have in terms of York United exists, FC Edmonton exists, existed. Um, yes. So it, it seemed a, a lot of the pot calling the kettle black from the CPL statements. I was happy with the CSA statements, but on the whole, a women's league under development in Canada, Potential 2025 kickoff, that's what it's set as. Uh, exciting times, just your initial thoughts on it. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm of course, fascinated by not just the proposal, because, I mean, again, it's a lot to like with the proposal, but you can be honest, a pretty strong proposal in terms of just the fact they were able to get the Whitecaps on board. I mean, not surprised given Steph LeBay's role, but the fact they were able to get a team with relatively deep pockets, if we can look at that, uh, you know, a team that has invested in, in women's soccer in the past. Of course, it's no secret the Whitecaps do have some shortcomings to still overcome on the women's side, especially in light of the abuse scandal that was suffered, uh, you know, over a decade ago go with the u20 team so the fact but the fact that uh you know a team of that that size what rated pretty highly in, in terms of the forbes list in terms of valuation then you of course you had the foothill strong support there for soccer uh you know they've obviously affiliated with cavalry and other professional team and then you look at the sponsors as well air canada cibc um you know those are two heavy hitters interestingly as well cibc kind of linked it with the Canada soccer and CSB and whatnot with the recent uh, partnership of, of there as well. So maybe that's a link that ends up paying fruit further down the line. Um, and then of course, a new broadcasting service. I saw Ben tweeting about that earlier this morning about how they've also started to get some work done on broadcasting. So a lot of important X's have been ticked off. Going to be fascinating, of course, to see where the uh, six, um, you know, next markets end up being and what the ownership situation ends up being materialized, but I thought it was a pretty thorough process, one that was a lot to be excited about. And it's good that they've come out and done that because now it kind of forces the hands of a lot of other properties because, I mean, it sounds like the CPL has been looking at a women's league since the beginning. So all of a sudden this makes them realize that, okay, there's a front-facing league with two play two very popular players, some heavy hitters, including some sponsors that already are, do sponsor the league, all of a sudden it might make sense for the two to sit down at the negotiating table. And at the very least, it sounds like uh, Matheson, Project 8, and company will be ready to go in 2025 regardless, but also the fact that they've done that as well is nice because it feels like there could be some moments in the next two years where everyone comes together and you end up having one strong women's domestic league, which is, of course, what we all want. It absolutely is. And let's hope that that all comes to fruition. And, you know, just the fact that there's going to be an additional pathway is massive because despite the lack of a domestic league, the women's player pool is still quite strong. Now you're starting to see other countries catch up as I touched on earlier, because they have started their own leagues and clubs and they keep investing more money. And so you're starting to see a little more variance in terms of hey, maybe Mexico's youth teams can beat Canada's youth teams in certain settings because they're able to get more players some opportunities. 
this should be able to help because so many countries were starting to get closer to Canada and the U.S. that it was starting to get a little concerning. This is only going to help. And hey, look, if another league wants to start up, whether it's a rival league or just, I don't know, maybe do it tiered or something, that can only help too. So I'm thrilled that this is the case. Now we need to hope that the support is there, media-wise, fan-wise, all of this stuff, because we've been calling for a women's league for years. Now it's time for everybody, us, the fans included, to put their money where their mouths are, one way or another. I'm going to nip your idea of having a second league right in the butt there because I think that that's completely detrimental. I think that having another opportunity would be good. But if you look at the state of women's hockey in North America, a second league is not where women's soccer needs to go. And I'm worried that the CPL sees Project 8 and the, this league coming together will launch their own. And then you have the tension as you have between the PWHPA and the PHF. Uh, the PHF acting as more of the league structure and the PWHPA saying we're going to build a league and eventually sort of have livable wages, et cetera, et cetera. And those two have been, there's been infighting, outfighting for several years. And I'm worried that if you bring a second league in Canada, you're going to have that issue. The NWSL, that's the MLS of this equation. But if you bring a second league in Canada, you're going, there's potential to have that sort of bitterness between the two, the tension if players want to switch between the two. I think there's nothing good that can come out of having two leagues in Canada, especially in a country where you're not having a lot of those markets that can support two teams in any sport, let alone a sport that has a lot of support, I hope has a lot of support in Canada, but has also shown to be fickle in some areas. So I truly believe that women's soccer can succeed in this country, but I also truly believe that one league is the way to do it. And I would say the same in terms of North American women's hockey. But as we move on to questions from Herbert McCula and Oz Sweeney, what are your ideal eight cities for the women's league? I know Alex and I have had some thoughts on this, maybe not extremely well thought out at this point, but just brainstorming a little Vancouver and Calgary already confirmed. uh, And Diana Matheson has mentioned that she wants four in the West, four in the East. And then there would be sort of a, uh, combined part of the schedule where they would all come together in one central hub to limit travel and play those cross-conference games. But I have Winnipeg and Regina. I could also see Saskatoon instead of Regina, but definitely something in Saskatchewan. Winnipeg, I think, is a pretty easy in considering the facility they have with IG Field, considering the Manitoba Bisons women's soccer team already plays at IG Field. So there's a history of women's soccer being played at that facility. And then in the East, Somewhere in Toronto, I have Varsity Stadium in downtown Toronto, uh, just over 4,000 capacity. That's ballpark what Diana Matheson has been talking about to start this league. I don't think it's ideal, but I think having a facility in downtown Toronto would be fantastic and better than heading up to York Lions Stadium or something of that sort. I also have Quebec City instead of Montreal. Uh, Quebec City and their stadium at TELUS UL Stadium at the University of Laval. I think that could be positive. And I was there for the U Sports Women's Soccer Championship and there was exceptional support for women's soccer. So I could definitely see that. Ottawa, we've seen what they can do with Atletico Ottawa. We've seen the the talent that has come out of Ottawa as well. And TD Play seems perfectly fit for a women's league as well as Halifax. I don't know whether the HFX Wanderers necessarily have the funding to take on another team and pay the fees that will need to be paid to not only support the league, but the wages and the operating costs as well. But I just 
imagining women's soccer at the Wanderers grounds sends a shiver down my spine. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you on all those. I would just choose probably Saskatoon as the as the team, especially because they're going to have a CPL side. But I mean, it probably speaks to the the next question that I believe Canadian Footy Fan Channel asked in terms of is it even possible for CPL teams to join this women's league with CSB not being involved? And you know, to that I would answer it's up to the owners and whether or not they have the funds to be able to do it. Obviously, assuming they can, Saskatoon's in there, Halifax is in there for me. Quebec City is a great shout, Ben. I think that would be the way to go over Montreal or the Montreal area. Though, if you maybe want to get a better reach, maybe you go Montreal in the Montreal area. But I would still lean Quebec City. That's such a lovely part of the country and it's the capital of the province. I think it would make a lot of sense. So I'm pretty much in agreement with you there. I would probably say no to Edmonton until we get feasible evidence that they can support any league or any soccer club whatsoever, whether that's a men's or a women's team. Yeah, I'd go for my choices. I'd go, I want Victoria. I think I'd just like to see, because I think BC has a very strong soccer economy. Historically, we do have to remember BC is the one that is, has had the oldest history with, with soccer. And again, there's a rich history of women's soccer in BC. So I think as we've seen with Pacific, soccer could be supported on the island. I think there's a good history on that front. So I have the island. Of course, a lot of great shouts across the board. I ended up going for a second team in the West. I went Winnipeg just because I feel like it's been a market that's been growing a lot on the men's side uh, as well. I think there's certainly a good shout for Saskatoon though as well or Regina. So I'm not opposed to either of those three, be it Winnipeg, Saskatoon or Regina. Uh, lots of growth happening in the prairies. A lot of good players coming to Saskatchewan. I mean, one Janine Becky, of course, coming out of Saskatchewan. Of course, her brother Drew. Uh, you know, you got Thomas Assal. You got... Uh, you know, Brett Levi's decent little economy growing in Saskatchewan. So you can only imagine what a women's league there would do as well. So no bad choices. I went GT. I ended up going Hamilton just because ideally, if all goes right, you want TFC involved. Like they've got the money. It would be fascinating to see what they do if they threw their money behind a team and just invested in some of the stars and got the downtown stadium. I think it could be a fascinating venture. But it's kind of almost just they don't have women's programs, which is really disappointing. They don't even they barely don't even think they have a women's academy. They haven't had any sort of women's teams that, you know, you look at Whitecaps and now Montreal, they've got those facilities in place, whereas TFC just doesn't, which is a bit of a worry. So because of that, I went for Hamilton just because they've been a market that's been growing. They've been showing good interest for soccer. But ideally, all things, you know, ideal world, of course, you want Toronto. Let's not kid ourselves. And then I went Ottawa for understandable reasons. The nation's capital, they've shown a strong appetite for soccer. Then on the... Atlantic Coast. I went for a bit of a new market just because, again, I love Halifax. Love to see a team there, but to kind of spread the love a bit in the Atlantic Canada and grow the soccer economy there, one city at a time. I went Moncton. They hosted 2015 Women's World Cup games. Did a good job. Uh, there was a lot of positive growth, a lot of strong crowds, and then they had no pro soccer to fall back on. So I think if you can revisit Moncton, bilingual city, well placed enough where it's not as complicated to to get to. I feel like it could be a bit of a sleeper city. So I went Moncton for my Atlantic shout. And from the third sub podcast, which current U Sports player could benefit the most from the new women's league launching? And I would have to say UBC's Sofia Ferreira. I've talked to quite a few university sport connections, and there's a possibility that could make her way into the national team at some point. She's shown that that potential at the U sports level being completely dominant as a first year and a second year. And she'll be graduating 
right as this league's launching. So I think she's a perfect fit for the women's league as well. But Alex, I know you've watched a lot of U Sports soccer over your time as well, as well as League One and, and the players who who do play in U Sports soccer. Uh, have you got any ideas of who, who might be able to benefit from this league, sort of on the younger side of U Sports soccer? Yeah, I mean, the ones I'm fascinated with is, of course, I'm more familiar with League One BC. Is any of those white caps uh, youngsters, because a lot of them were 15 this year. So if you do the math, 2025, three years away, two years away, most of them are still only going to be 17, 18 by the time this pro league comes around. So you see some of the players the white caps had who were, you know, so young and just doing excellent. You look at your, a lot of them are at the U17 World Cup, like Geneva Hernandez, Gray, Anna Hauer, Joy Kim Emway. Jamie Perot, et cetera, like that. I'd be fascinated to see any of them. But also, yeah, some of them who maybe in a couple of years will be graduating from U-Sports as well. Uh, you know, a lot of fascinating players on that regard. I mean, just throwing names out there is someone you see a lot of Ben. I think someone like Catalin Tolnai. I mean, she could be a fascinating player in a couple of years to to go out and and, and be a front-facing player, maybe on the, the local Victoria or Vancouver uh, team. So a lot of talent in U-Sports we've seen as well in the women's games, just covering our York women's soccer games a lot of good talent as well you look at the uh, ben went to the nationals and you look at all the teams in quebec as well a lot of great stuff cross board yeah i could certainly see a player like Catalin tole making her way even to a potential toronto team she is from the toronto area uh played a little bit in just sort of the feeder leagues of league one ontario uh and i guess uh, when you look at quebec Lea jean fortier i could see uh making her way into the league as well uh, Megan Sauvé, a standout with the Montreal Carabin. Her plans are to go overseas next year after graduating. From Oz Sweeney, why does Canadian media continue to give Montagliani a pass? KJ muting questions about if he asked about Bob Rarda in his post in the, his latest one-on-one. And why did one soccer do basically nothing for 24 hours after the Women's League announcement? I'll answer the second question first. It might have something to do with the CPL slash CSB side of it all. Maybe there was some sort of a mandate put out. We don't really know. As for the Montaliani side of it, this is also a question I ask myself constantly. He is someone who has been at the center of a lot of, let's just call them questionable things, like the formation of CSB. I mean, obviously the Barbarata stuff, but even just things like, the CSB formation is something that I think a lot of people don't put a lot of stock into, which is quite weird. So I do find it very strange that ultimately Montaliani seems to skate by. I don't know if it's because of his relationship in general with the media or if he just knows the right people and or keeps himself squeaky clean. I don't know, but he's certainly not blameless in terms of a lot of stuff that has happened, whether it's Bob Berarda or the formation of CSB as well. Keeping in mind that he obviously did play an integral part in the CPL's formation too, but you got to look at the good and the bad equally. Well, and again, the fact that there was a 2015 Women's World Cup and no Women's League in concurrence to that, but then with the 2026 Men's World Cup, the creation of a Men's League, I've always just found that strange, personally. From Jordan SC, what is going on in Montreal? Isn't it weird that they let go in, of so many pieces on top of Johnston and Kone? Well, this was Montreal's plan. They 
brought in Olivier Renard knowing that he was going to oversee a pretty big rebuild. Victor Wanyama's out. Obviously, George Mihailovic gets sold for what was at the time a record fee. Now Ismail Kone gets sold for a record fee. Alistair Johnson's gone. Potentially, Joel Waterman and Kamal Miller are going to be gone. This is really all part of the plan. This is why they lean towards youth and exploiting the MLS market because you can see how profitable it is. And now the next step in that is using all the money they've brought in, all the gam they've brought in, and then building out a squad from that even more. Now they obviously have to replace their coach, which is obviously not going to be easy, but you can see what the plan was. We expected this to come and that's really what's happening. Did you expect maybe six, seven, eight guys to go all at once? Maybe not, but I think Renard is going to be very happy with the fresh slate that he has here to be able to play with. Yeah, and I think this was the part of the plan. One thing Renard has said, he's always keeping an eye on upgrading his position. So he's been planning for these departures. And again, you look at Johnston while they've got Zachary Brogiar, who can step right into his stead. Uh, you've got Ismail Kone. Well, I'm sure they'd love to give Rita Zuhir a bit more of a chance. Center back maybe a bit more of a question, but ultimately this is what Montreal wants to become. And I think this is what we're going to see more of in MLS. And why not if, if you're in our... It's just, it makes good business sense. There's been a lot of talk about Montreal losing money. So the fact that Johnston, who you paid 1 million of non-existent money for, Kone, who came as a semi-homegrown, obviously not fully through the academy, but a local player. You know, you look at Waterman and Miller, guys who came on the cheap for either MLS money or next to no money. Uh, You look at Mihailovic as well, a guy who came for MLS funny money. Essentially, across those five deals, you can say they spent what about a mil two or two two mil of MLS money, and then a hundred k. That, of course, being Waterman, yeah. what they around what they sent to Calvary, and then they're making fifteen twenty million off of that. Crazy, uh, good business sense, uh, and, and from there, it's just about okay. Now you got to invest in the squad, invest in your academy, so you can do that with regularity. Get the right coach. Obviously, I think losing Will for Nancy arguably was the biggest blow of them all, just because that's one where it's maybe a little harder to replicate, a harder to replace. But I think the, you can see what the model is there. It's just a matter of uh, you know going for and executing it. Teams go through cycles all the time in MLS. Even teams who contend and spend a lot of money, like Atlanta, is like you know thank your LAFCs and whatnot. So if you're Montreal and the fact you competed with top teams, but are also making money at the end of these two, three, four year cycles that MLS teams go for, it's a good model. And one we've seen yeah. Philadelphia union do to great success and look at them continue. They've sold McKenzie, Aronson, another Aronson, all these guys. And they continue to be a competitive team year after year by investing in the right areas of their squad and their Academy. From rude shrewd. What do you make of the Smyrniotis to CF Montreal rumors? Look, I think Smyrniotis, if you're looking for somebody who is comfortable working with young players, who can identify young players, we've seen him sign a couple of, you know, ex-Montreal guys recently, of course, Wubens Pasias being one of the key ones. I think he's perfect for what you want to do. The only real downside is he doesn't speak French which might come into play here a little bit because we know obviously how important it is for those front-facing figures in Montreal or Quebec sports, whether that's the coach, general manager, sporting director, what have you, to be bilingual and to be able to speak the first language of Quebec. So that might interfere with it a little bit, but certainly in terms of his coaching pedigree and plus what he's done with Forge, he more than deserves a chance like that. It would be awesome to see. I don't know if it does happen though. Yeah, I think that's the profile Montreal's looking for. Mm-hmm. And I think if Smirniotis is available and 
you, I think he's, he's a good option they should look at because I think for Montreal, you want guys who are good with younger players, someone who has a set system, someone who has an a model of play, a way of going about things. That's what Wilfred Nancy did so well. So I think even if Smear Notice doesn't get chosen, I think it'll be that profile of manager, someone who's really worked with younger players, someone who's you know grown uh, and has a clear way of, of thinking. So it's going to be fascinating to see who they can find within that. You know, maybe someone who, of course, if possible, speaks French and, and goes from there, because I think that's going to be Wilfred Nancy was huge in that regard of just giving these players a chance. And what was so unique with Nancy, and again, why I'm so excited to see what he can do to Russell Rowe and Farsi, was just hearing the players talk about the confidence he instills in youngsters. Like not only does he just give them this chance, but he he helps them. He built them up in a way where Johnson said it. He reformed the way Johnston v and played soccer so we'll see it just gives you an idea of that they're really going to go for a guy who's going to be as much a youth developer and a philosopher almost as it is a head coach and it's going to be fascinating to see who they find who ticks as many of those boxes as possible and that's all for episode 101 of the northern football podcast part two if you haven't listened to part one please go back and listen to that one make sure to rate subscribe review on any podcast platform that you're listening to if you're on apple go over to spotify and do the same thing and make sure to follow northern football on all platforms as well thanks so much for tuning in we'll be back to regular scheduling soon as well with the world cup reaching its conclusion for peter for alex i'm ben thanks so much for listening <laughs>